0: Welcome to First Christian Church. Glad to have you here with us today. My name is Mark Liebert. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at First Christian Church. If you uh, aren't familiar with it, let me encourage you to look to your bulletin. If you're new with us, you may not be aware there's a connection card in your bulletin. If you could just fill that out, slip it in the offering plate, leave it on your seat, that'd be great. It helps us keep a record of who was here, which is helpful for us as we plan for capacity and things like that for the attendance of our services. If you're also not familiar with the series that we're going through, this is week three of our seven-week series on Prove It, and we're doing a little different approach. We're having the message first, followed by the worship corporately together in song and communion and everything else that we do on a Sunday morning. So just to set the stage for that, we will begin with the message first this morning. Scott's been gone all week at a church conference in Texas, a leadership conference where he's been getting some additional training. The elders support these opportunities for Scott to further his education and increase his vision for our church. To be honest, when he gets away to learn and grow, it benefits us. (laughs) It also keeps him fresh and engaged in his sermon preparation, which is hard to do for 52 weeks a year. So the elders highly encourage our ministers to do that, to get personal development and training through the year. But you'll still see Scott, because he can't stay away from the local church, he's going to be leading our worship in song this morning, because our worship minister, as you know, got married, and he's away on his honeymoon. So a bit of a change, if you're not familiar with our church, I don't normally preach, and Scott doesn't normally lead the worship in song. But it's all for the glory of God, and we'll get through it. (laughs) So glad that you're here today. As I said, this is week three of our seven-week series from the book of First John, called Prove It. If you weren't here, let me just give a quick summary. Week one, we learned that when we are a joyful witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ in our lives, it's the proof the world needs to see that Jesus is alive, that he's real. They can't see the resurrected Jesus. You and I can't see the resurrected Jesus, but the world can see our lives and the proof of our witness. Last week, we learned that a second proof comes from humbly confessing our sin to God and to each other and seeking forgiveness authenticity Tommy said is always better than fakery remember that from last week's message the truth is every Christian struggles with sin there are no exceptions to that statement every Christian struggles with sin if we hide our sin or pretend that we're not struggling or that it doesn't exist all we do is call God a liar and deceive ourselves because I can tell you we're not deceiving others if I pretend to you that I don't have any sin only I am fooled you know better So a true follower of Jesus is honest about their sin. That's a proof of the work of God in their life. And actually that's refreshing to the world when they see us be honest about the fact that we struggle with sin. This week the focus of our text is on the flip side. The proof that comes from our obedience to God's command. Because humbly accepting our sinfulness is a great start, but if that's where we end, (laughs) there's no hope in that. So this week it's about the fact that real followers of Christ have a new life by the Spirit that empowers them to live for God and be obedient to his commands. That's the proof that we're going to look at today. So let's read the passage together. It's just four verses, three, four, five, and six. We'll put, up, put it up on the screen. I actually have a lot of scripture that I'll be flipping through today. I've already apologized to the guys up in the audio visual booth. They'll do their best to stay up with me and keep flipping it on the TV monitors for you. But let's read three through six together and jump in. When I was in college, I was part of uh, it was a Bible school, and we had a choir called a chorale, about 60 voices, co-ed, guys and girls, about 30 each. And we did a tour. We did many tours. I counted, I think, 10 tours that when I went on, and one of them was overseas to Europe for a month, Germany, all that area. And we rented a, a double-decker German bus, and the bus company provided us with a driver whose name was Udo. I remember Udo very well, even though this was the summer of 1991. <laughs> Because Udo didn't speak a word of English. And he was rude, stubborn, and generally unpleasant. In fact, there were a couple days where we'd driven 8, 10, 12 hours to get to our next concert. And he pulled over on the side of the road and said, I've reached my quota of driving for the day. I will take you no further. And we were within an hour of our destination in our concert. Happened at least twice. We missed at least two concert engagements because Udo said, that's it, I'm done. Well, the Lord really laid Udo on my heart. This is a Christian choir, and I thought, I'd I'd love a chance to witness to Udo. So I prayed, and the Lord gave me a chance, because the company sent an interpreter to help us with the rest of the tour. They saw it wasn't going well, so they needed an interpreter for Udo. And so toward the end of our time, I asked if I could share why we were even doing this choir tour, and he agreed. And so I explained to him that we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the perfect Son of God who lived a sinless life, who died a sacrificial death on the cross in our place, And that if by repentance and faith in Him we would believe, our sins would be forgiven and we'd be granted eternal life in heaven. And when I finished saying it, through the interpreter, he said, yes, that's what we believe also. And that was the end of the conversation. And I remember thinking, I was so confused and frustrated. And I remember thinking to myself, if you believe that, then why is everything about you so unlike Jesus? I think Udo could have benefited from our passage today. (laughs) Before we dive into each of the four verses, let me give you just a little background on why John the Apostle wrote this particular letter. We call the letter 1 John because there are three. This letter was probably written around A.D. 90, which makes it one of the last books or letters of the New Testament ever to be written, Revelation being the last one also written by the Apostle John. At this point, John is the only remaining apostle left. All the others have been martyred for their faith in Christ and he's an old man nearing the end of his life. A good 55 to 60 years have passed since Jesus returned to heaven. Just think about that. Sixty years have passed since Jesus has gone back to heaven. Churches have been planted all over the Roman world by Paul and other missionaries. And unfortunately, these churches were experiencing some problems, problems which John addresses in his letter. Most notable, and we'll start to flip the Passage up here for you. Most notable was that a group of people had recently left the church. First John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. John says they're not of us. In other words, they're not true followers of Jesus, the ones who left. These pretenders were now trying to deceive the rest of the believers who still remained in the churches. First John 2.26 I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So John warns them to be careful who they listen to and what they believe. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we learn from John that the false believers were denying key beliefs, things that we would call central to our Christian faith, such as claiming to have no sin. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. How about denying that Jesus was the Christ? First John 2.22 Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. They also deny that Jesus was the Son of God. First John 5.10 Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. But it wasn't just their theology, their doctrine, their beliefs that were wrong. The way they lived was completely ungodly. They hated their Christian brother. 1 John 4:20. If anyone says, "I love God," and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. They even said it was okay to live their lives of sin, that God didn't care. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. Little children. You can hear John as an old man. He says little children all the time. He's 90 years old or so. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That's the background to John's letter. Quick summary, but you understand it now. And unfortunately, it appears that some of the true believers in the churches were starting to question whether they really knew God, whether their faith was real, whether they truly were children of God. They were having a crisis of faith, bottom line. So John wrote his letter to reassure his readers that their relationship with God was real and that they could be confident of eternal life through faith in Jesus. Just a few verses to throw at you where he brings that up. 1 John 2.21 I write to you, he says, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Three one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And note, and so we are, he says. 1 John four four. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. You are from God. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then lastly, 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. Can you hear John's heart coming through? He wants his readers to have the confidence that they are the children of God. Well, the first verse in our passage of our four four verses is one of these reassurances. And by this we know, verse 3, that we have come to know him. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. This is the first of these by this we know phrases in John. He says something like this 14 times in his letter. By this we know, by this we know. He's saying we can be confident of something, but there's a condition. Now, here's how it works. There's a claim made and then there's a verification of a proof of some kind. The claim here is to know him, and the proof is by keeping his commandments. Now, it seems simple enough, but when we study the Bible, we always have to ask questions of the text. And there's two questions I want us to ask of this verse. First is, what does it mean to know him? He actually uses the word know twice in this sentence. We know that we have come to know him. The first we know is just a statement of fact. Hey, it's true. We know it to be true. The second know is different because it's different because it says we know him. It's knowing a person. So he doesn't just mean facts like general knowledge about God. He means a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because in chapter 1, verse 3, he uses the word fellowship to describe how we relate to God. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's talking about a relationship. So when he says know him, he means personally know him, a relationship. So he's saying it can be stated as a fact that we have a true relationship with God if, we keep his commandments, which brings us to the second question. What does he mean? What commandments is he referring to? All the commandments, everyone, wh- what keep his commandments? Well, it's best to let John answer that himself, and he does later in the letter. If any of you have been reading this book to go along with Scott and Tommy and I, if we've been preaching, you'll notice something interesting about the book of First John. You can't outline it well. It's like a circle a circle of themes that he says once and then he comes back around to it and he gives a little more detail and then he comes around to it a third and fourth time with more and more detail. It's like a bunch of en- ever enlarging circles. That's how John wrote his letter. But that's not a problem. That's a good thing because you can use the rest of the letter to help inform the meaning of the first part of the letter to see what John's getting at. <clears throat> so if we go ahead to John 3.23, 1 John 3.23, he explains what he means by keeping God's commandments. He says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he has commanded us. So now it's clear. By keeping God's commands, he means believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. Those two things primarily, mostly. So let's summarize now. Let's come back around. Let's summarize what we've learned from verse 3 by asking these questions of the text. We can have confidence That we have a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ if we obey his commands, particularly the command to love one another. That's what John's saying. But I want to make a point of clarification here because you may have already thought it. John is not saying that a relationship with God comes by obeying his commands. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that obeying God's commands is a characteristic of someone who has a relationship with God. With God. It's cart and the horse. You don't get the cart before the horse. In other words, obeying God's commands, especially the command to love one another, is a visible demonstration in our lives of the fact that we do know God. And that gives us confidence before Him. That's what He's saying. So living a life that is characterized by consistent obedience to God is one way, not the only way, but one way that we can have confidence that we actually know God. I have a friend who was part of that same college choir. Her name was Elizabeth. She had grown up as a minister's daughter, um, came to college, that's where I met her, and she was having a crisis of faith, similar to those here in 1 John. She didn't have a before Jesus time in her life. Now, many of you came to know Jesus later in your life. You can look back and say, this was before I knew Jesus. This is after I knew Jesus. She couldn't do that. Her home was one where they taught her about Jesus her whole life. And all she ever knew was believing in Jesus. Well, when she got to college, she questioned, do I really know Jesus? Do I have a relationship with God that's real? She'd never been challenged on that, never tested on that. And I remember her coming to me. She came to me for help on that, crying, struggling. Do I know God? Will I go to heaven? Are my sins forgiven? And I I knew her at that point pretty well. And I told her, I remember telling her, look at your life. Look at your life to see if your faith is real. She was a humble, godly, kind, loving young woman who wanted to please and obey God through faith in Jesus. I said, look at your life. The proof is in your life. Your obedience to God's commands. It reflects the nature of who you are, a child of God. That's what John's talking about here. Obeying God is not the way to heaven. I'm going to say that several times today. That is not the way to heaven. That only comes by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But it is one way that we can have confidence that our relationship with God is real. It's real. By this we know, John the old apostle says. By this we know. Well, this truth in verse 3 is followed by several whoever says examples that john brings up where he's going to compare the false believers who say one thing but live another so let's look at verse four together whoever says i know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him i have to admit i'm reading this and i'm immediately reminded of udo (laughs) he claimed to know god but he didn't make much effort to keep his commands i don't know his heart of course but he sure seems like this These false believers claimed to have a relationship with God, but it was just empty words. Their lies were not characterized by obedience to God's commands. There was no love in their hearts for one another. John says they're just lying to themselves. Others, there's no truth in their words. We've already pointed out that John identifies obeying God's commands. The two most important is to believe in the Son of God in Jesus Christ, and number two, to love one another. But here he just says commands. He doesn't restrict it. So we can't restrict it. Obeying God's commands. But please hear this. I want to say this as well this morning. He doesn't mean that a person with a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ will always obey all of His commands perfectly. That's not what John is saying. How do we know that? Because he's just finished saying in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Christians have and always will struggle with their attitudes, their motives, their thoughts, and their actions to make them like Jesus. It's not easy. It's not easy for me. That's why John told the believers what to do when they sin. Not if they sin, when they sin. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you think, well, maybe you could reach that point where you don't sin. <laughs> really? Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children. I just. You've got to hear the old apostle speaking to his children in the faith. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but. but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Yes, propitiation. Let me explain that. Propitiation, if you have a different translation, it does explain it. This is the actual word that the Greek language uses. What does it mean? It's a sacrifice that satisfies God And makes him favorable toward us. I'm going to say that again in case you want to write it down. It is a sacrifice that satisfies God and makes him favorable toward us. That's what the cross of Jesus did for those who trust in him. It turned God's anger away from us forever. Praise God. So we need to make a distinction here. The pretenders that John is talking about didn't just sometimes fail to obey God's command. No, he uses the present tense, they do not keep. He's talking about an ongoing, habitual life of disobedience to God. He's saying that's incompatible with claiming to have faith in Jesus Christ. You can't have both. It's oil and water. He's talking about the person who claims to know God, but then lives for himself. That's fakery. I have a cousin far away in another state who claims that he became a Christian when he was a boy. I've heard him tell me this. He's an older cousin than I am. But my cousin has never, ever in the time that I've known him showed any obedience to God and his commands. He has a filthy mouth. He he has lived with multiple women outside of marriage including his current relationship. He makes racist comments and he can be very unforgiving if you cross him. Does that sound like Jesus? I'm not God. It's not my job to decide who's in and who's out. Thankfully, that's not my job. But based on the criteria John gives us here, I'd have to say that my cousin's a liar and the truth is not in him. He's deceived himself. Not yet, at least, because I'm still praying for my cousin. There's still hope. And if any of you have loved ones like that, you keep praying. You keep praying. Well, in contrast to this, verse 5, John gives us another positive example. Let's look at verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of god is perfected keeping his words is just another way of saying keeping his commandments he's comparing someone who does obey and someone who doesn't so again we have to ask two questions of the text this is a good way to do bible study ask questions of the text what does he mean by the love of god You're like, well the love of god is obvious is it in john's letter he uses the love of god in three different ways if you've read through it it's a major theme this is his first mention of love in the letter and he'll mention it many many more times it could mean God's love for us. Chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's God loving us. That's God loving us. So that's what he means by God, love of God there. But it also could mean God's love for us, which we then extend to others. Chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, How does God's love abide in him? You see that? That's about, yes, God's love, but it's that which we give away. But there's a third way he uses it, and it's just our love for God. Chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. In other words, how do we show God our love? We obey him. So John uses it all three ways. Which way does he mean here? Maybe all three. We can't be 100% sure, but I think it's probably the third way, our love for God, because he uses that similar phrase in chapter 5, verse 3. I think John is saying, our love for God is perfected when we keep his word. But that brings up another question. What does he mean, our love for God is perfected? Okay, in the Greek language, perfected can also be translated as completed, and some of your Bibles may use that word. That's more helpful, I think, to understand it as completed. Because we can get hung up on the idea of perfection. None of us, none of us is ever going to reach perfection. And we know John agrees with that because he already just talked about what to do when you sin. Right? He just said that. So we need to think in terms of completion, maturity, not perfection. And John actually combines this idea of perfection and love later. Remember? his book his letter is an ever increasing circle of ideas and themes that he keeps coming back to so if you go to 1 john 4:12 you will see the same idea combined 1 john 4:12 if we love one another God abides in us and notice his love is perfected in us completed in us so there it is now it makes sense the idea is that our love for god can be called complete perfect when it reaches its intended goal when it reaches its purpose what's its goal what's its purpose When we love others the way He has commanded us to, which is the way He loves us. That's God's goal. So if we say we love God, He's looking for that to be demonstrated by loving the way He loves. That's what He's looking for. That's the aim God is going for in our lives, the obedience and the maturity that enables us to be like Him. 1 John 4.11 Beloved, if God so loved us, what? We also ought to love one another. And Paul says the same thing, not just John, Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, why? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That's the perfection of love that God demonstrates and which he wants to see modeled in his children. Do you remember the Facebook killer from a few weeks ago? Does that mean anything to you, the Facebook killer? If any of you, some of you are nodding. Robert Godwin was killed by Steve Stevens in Cleveland and he posted a video of it on Facebook and was called The Facebook Killer. Yeah. Well, in an interview with Anderson Cooper, and I'm going to quote, one of the daughters of the man who died said, the thing that I would take away the most from my father is he taught us about God. Said Tanya Godwin Baines. How to fear God. Now listen, how to love God and how to forgive Each one of us forgives the killer, the murderer. You do? Cooper asked. We want to wrap our arms around him, she said. That's incredible, Tanya, Cooper said. That you think about that even in your time of grief, that you're thinking about them. My friends, I'm going to submit to you, that's what it looks like to have love for God perfected in our lives, to forgive and love as He does for us. Is Tanya Godwin-Baines perfect? No. But has the love and relationship she has with God been demonstrated the way God wants in her life? Yes. Yes. That's what God's looking for. Let's go to our final verse today. Another by this we know statement. By this we may know that we are in Him. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Now, remember how this works. We can be confident of something. There's a claim made, but there's a proof, a condition. The claim is that we abide in him. The proof is walking in the same way he walked. But let's ask two questions of the text again. Good way to do Bible study. What does abide in him mean? John uses the term abide all over the place in the Gospel of John and in the letter of 1 John. I'm just going to throw some verses up for you. Verse Chapter 228. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 324, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Chapter 415, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him and he in God. If you go all the way back to the Gospel of John that he wrote about five years earlier than this, John 15, 9, and 10, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, let me summarize all of that abide language, which also can be translated live, abide, live. It, it, it encompasses lots of things. Faith in Jesus, obedience to God's command, but it's more than that. It's not just straight obedience. There's a close walk with God that's implied where you sense the power of the presence of the Spirit of God in your life and He enables you to walk with Him and sense that you're His child. That's what abiding is. So abiding is to have a close relationship with God through faith in Jesus by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So, if we claim that that's true of our lives, John says we ought to walk in the same way he walked. But now we get our second question. Who's he, and how did he walk? (laughs) The language of the original text actually says, the way that one walked. Well, who do you think that one is? It's Jesus. The NIV even translates it Jesus. It's so obvious it's Jesus. Yes, it's the way Jesus walked. And what does it mean to walk? You know it. It means to live. Walk and live are interchangeable. John is saying the way Jesus lived. And he doesn't explain how Jesus lived. you know why? Remember, the Gospels were written at this point probably 30 to 40 years earlier. They're well-known. The Gospels are well-known throughout all the churches. They know exactly how Jesus lived, and so do you. So do you. How did he live? If we had to sum it up, how did Jesus live? The answer would be in obedience to the Father. Would it not? You can think of all sorts of verses. Not my will, but thine be done, right? I'm just going to throw one verse up, John eight twenty nine. This is Jesus who says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For what? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's our Savior. That's the example he left us. Of course, he did it perfectly, and we can't. I know that. But let's summarize what we've learned from verse 6. We can have confidence. Again, John wants his readers to have confidence that we enjoy a close relationship with God through his spirit if we obey his commands like Jesus did. You remember my friend Elizabeth from college that I mentioned? I didn't actually finish her story, did I? I'm happy to say she was able to overcome her doubts and gain assurance that her faith in Jesus was real. As she continued to live her life in obedience to Jesus, her doubts were replaced by the confidence that she truly was God's child. I watched her get over that crisis in her life. And today... I can tell you she's serving the Lord. She's actually married to a Christian professor at Wheaton College, where I think Samuel Van Amberg's going this year, right? And where Scott graduated in Dogney. She's raising her two boys to love Jesus. John is reminding us in these four verses that if you're a follower of Jesus, your life, my life, will demonstrate obedience to God's command, especially the command to love one another. When we live in obedience to God's word, It gives us a confidence that we belong to God. So the question that I want to leave with you today is, are you Udo or Elizabeth? Or to put it another way, does your life prove that you're a follower of Jesus and give you a confidence of that fact? If you can answer yes, praise God. The next step for you is just to continue growing in your faith. All of us can take the next step. If you answered no to that question, then the next step for you is to repent of your sin. Whatever it is, that's a barrier between you and God. I don't know it. I don't know it. You know it. We're going to have people up here that want to pray with you and talk with you and help you in that next step. Do business with God, whatever it is. Sin is a barrier to any relationship with God. Or maybe you didn't know the answer to that question. I don't know then you need to get with godly counsel. Get with someone who can help you work these things through in your life to think about what it means to claim faith in Jesus and then live in obedience. You won't do it perfectly, but we were never meant to do this alone. Even Jesus took 12 men with him and then the three closest disciples on the night he was betrayed. We don't do the Christian life alone, and neither should you and I. Whatever your need may be, we have people here ready and willing to meet with you, help you take that next step. Would you pray with me?